Welcome to All Things Psychology. My name is Anya Aguar and I'm the founder and host on this series. So today's episode is the first of many more to come. I've chosen to focus on the topic of resilience in the context of applying to the clinical psychology doctorate. For those of you who perhaps aren't aware, this is a three-year course funded by the NHS and it's offered by a select number of universities in the UK. As a quick disclaimer though, I wanted to stress that this podcast in general won't just be focusing on the ClinSci process, I'll also be delving into prominent areas within psychology, such as current trends in adult and child safeguarding, as well as deconstructing commonly cited legislation like the NHS 10-year plan. During this episode, we'll speak to Alex, who applied six times to the doctorate, bearing in mind you can only apply once a year, before getting accepted. Alex is currently a first-year trainee at Royal Holloway, and he's kindly taken the time to share his experiences of how this has shaped him as a person with a particular focus on resilience. It was such a pleasure speaking with Alex and getting to know him. He really is one of a kind and such an inspiration. So I hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as I did recording it with him. So without further ado, let's introduce Alex. Alex, thank you so much for joining us as the first guest on All Things Psychology. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. It would be great if you could give us a sort of brief introduction in terms of who you are and what you're doing currently. Yeah, no, the the pleasure is mine, Anya. Thank you so much for having me. And it's a really cool idea. And I think when we spoke in the past, it's really something that I wish I had had, you know, in past applications. So definitely a pleasure to be here. But yeah, in sort of terms of, of, of who I am, um, I'm a first year trainee on the Royal Holloway Clinical Psychology Doctorate course. So this is the course that is funded by the NHS, the one that is hold, held in high esteem by a lot of people. You know, it's, it's the uh, a lot of people put it on a pedestal in that sense. Um, but uh, I'm really enjoying the, the course so far. I applied uh, six times before mm. getting on. Um, and, you know, I, I think I'm sort of looking forward to kind of discussing that a bit today in terms of kind of what I learned after each application and, and you know, what sort of kept me going. Um, because let's face it, it's a competitive process. It's not an easy process, um, but it is ultimately something that we all are very passionate about. You know, we're all applying for this because we really care and we want to make a difference and we want to sort of bring our sort of skill set to, to this course. So, um, yeah. Brilliant. Thank you so much. And I think, yeah, picking up on that passion and why you're doing the clinical doctorate, could you sort of take us back to the beginning where it all started for you in terms of why psychology and why the clinical doctorate? Yeah, and no, I, I, I'm, I'm hoping a lot of people can relate to that sense of being a very curious child, the one who asks lots of annoying questions to their parents um, and is never fully satisfied with an answer. Um, so I think that that's always sort of been in me. I'm always been a naturally quite curious person, uh, wanting to sort of understand things, wanting to understand people. Um, but I think as well, and I, I don't know as well if maybe you found this at sort of undergraduate psychology, you find a lot of people choose to work in psychology because they want to understand themselves as well. Definitely. And that sort of interest, introspectiveness, you know, that kind of wanting to understand yourself and, 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 you know, regardless of whether you might be experiencing difficulties, just that that wondering about yourself so that's definitely been a part of it um and then I think also part of the why is uh you know having 
I suppose when I was younger, I had quite a few anxieties. Um, and when I was sort of growing up and developing, it was a lot of it was anxieties about being a gay man. And, you know, how, how that manifested and, and how that affects sort of your social relationships. Uh, when I sort of got to the stage of having to sort of choose degrees and, and, and choose what I wanted to do for work, it was a lot of wanting to work preventatively. And, and I, I ended up working in CAMS for six years. And I think a huge part of what drew me to that was wanting to work with kids and uh, giving them the opportunities to to help themselves before things got worse when they were older, simply because, you know, having had gone through uh, sort of similar experiences when I was younger, not wanting that for anyone. Mm. So working in camps for six years and then, you know, sort of out of that, the the desire and the knowledge about the doctorate course came about. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think it's really important to hold on to that reason of why, because we're all going to have a very different reason. Um, yeah. And the actual process, as you'll be aware, the process of, of applying can really grind you down and kind of get rid of that that passion, that why. So it's really important to hold on to it. Yeah, absolutely. And I love what you said there in terms of the early prevention stuff, because I know that a lot of people were quite keen on just doing the treatment element and the inpatient units and all of that. But it's actually, it's really important to do the preventative work as well. And it's absolutely. just as important, definitely. So I love what you said there. Thinking about the clinical doctorate in general, I mean, I know in CAMS in, in particular, there are a lot of educational psychologists, for instance, and mm. things like that. So what sort of drew you to the clinical doctorate in particular, as opposed to something like the forensic or the educational doctorate route? Yeah, no, that, that's a great question. And as you say, like, you know, we as, you know, applicants for this for this course or, or even people still on the course, we work in MDTs. You know, we work with a lot of different people on, on our teams. And I think I was really fortunate to sort of be taken under the wing of some really great clinical psychologists that I work with. And I think what always, what I always really appreciated about clinical psychologists versus other areas of psychology, which absolutely play their role and are absolutely needed and are absolutely underfunded. Mm-hmm. You know, we need clinical psychologists in terms of the flexibility. And, and if you think of kind of that metaphor of that toolkit and having tools in the toolkit, you know, clinical psychologists really are adaptable people. You know, we we are drawn to this field because we can go from working in role, one role to working in another and taking with us those tools that we've got from one role. And I think I always just really, you know, held in high esteem the, the clinical psychologists that I worked for in, in all these roles um, when I was applying for the course um, and thinking about, um, you know, what am I bringing from one role to the next? regardless of the application process what am I actually gaining and learning how am I evolving and how does that set me up for success in my next role um so I did consider other routes I considered sort of educational psychology I considered counseling psychology and I was sort of reflecting on this sort of ahead of, of speaking with you about how in retrospect I wish I had maybe casted a wider net and you know sort of at least looked at the application process and and thought maybe quite deeply about well Okay, so I'm, I'm not, I maybe I'm not getting on to this course where I'm expecting to get on. What other options are available to me? And it really wasn't until sort of a, you know a, a few rejections down the line that I really sort of started to take that quite seriously, considered other ones. But for me, you know, my circumstances were that I had been earning a band four salary for quite a while. I, I couldn't self fund. I, I, I was attracted to that aspect of the doctorate. 
um, as as a huge sort of driving factor, and I'm sure a lot of other people were, but can totally understand having worked with counselling psychologists and educational psychologists, they, everyone plays a role. And actually, the best MDTs, the best services are where there is a diverse workforce. You know, everyone is able to offer different inputs and perspectives and problem solve together. So, yeah, there's, there's definitely alternative options out there. You just have to really think about what is driving this sort of passion for you. Definitely. And I love what you've said about the toolbox as well. I think that analogy is so great in that. We love know, our analogies. <laughs> yeah, I love it. You know, I think a lot of people put the ClinSight on this pedestal, like you say, as well. But we kind of discount actually what else is going on in the picture and what other roles are actually contributing to, to you know, that patient's care, et cetera. And also just reflecting on what you said about learning from other clinical psychologists, do you think that sort of mentorship was a kind of key driver in you wanting to apply and again and again and again? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I hope sort of that everyone can kind of relate that we are going to have people we work with that we really value that we really appreciate both professionally and socially. But on the other side, we're going to have people we work with and work beneath that we don't get on with and that aren't our style. But actually, you need you need to kind of experience all different aspects because you can see a clinical psychologist and think, and you can be in the room with them, observing them, do an assessment. You're like, oh gosh, I really like the way they ask that question. I'm gonna, I'm gonna use that, I'm gonna steal that. Um, and you can also then see another clinical psychologist in an assessment and you're like gosh that I just really didn't like the way that they phrased that or I didn't like the coldness or I didn't like how they kind of went in straight to asking that question without sort of much sort of preamble and that will you'll that will impact your clinical practice and the way you approach the way you work with your own clients um we are kind of very Frankenstein in that way of we kind of taking a little bits of all the people we work with to really form our own practice I to this day still you know, ask questions at the end of, of, of sessions with clients that I heard, overheard clinical psychologists talking with. So absolutely that mentorship, that, that, that ability for someone to take you under their wing is incredibly important. Um, not just only for your own development, but if you're thinking about the process, you're thinking about the application process, these are often the people that are writing your references, you know, and the, I mean, we can talk, ad nauseum about like the hierarchies and the politics and mm. you know wanting to constantly please the people above you and not wanting to rock the boat but that was a massive uh learning moment for me which is just how huge a role the references play in your application so if you can really work with a clinical psychologist or you get fortunate enough to work with a senior colleague who really understands the process, understands the, the doctor application process and works with you in your application. Mm. That, I, that I think is, is incredibly important. Definitely. I love what you've said as well about actually having an opinion and not just taking someone's word for, mm. you know, at face value in terms of, okay, this person's a clinical psychologist. Everything they must be doing is amazing. And actually, like you said, bringing it back to the beginning, being curious, questioning it, reflecting on it, forming your own opinions about things as well. I really like that. And I think, again, putting the pedestal there, it's sort of like, mm. okay, yes, you know, this person might be a clinical psychologist, but they have lots of different approaches within. And it's about actually finding what works for you, what works for your client group, et cetera. So no, I really, really like yeah. that. 
And I was I was going to add as well, just on top of what you said, that that learning that people who are further along in the process in the journey than you are, i.e., those who are trainees like myself or those who are qualified, everyone's still learning. Everyone's yeah. still constantly learning and are making mistakes and are learning from those mistakes and you know constantly trying to evolve. And if you think, you know, at that sense of like putting uh, senior colleagues on a pedestal, I think as soon as you realize that they're human beings <laughs> who who will go into assessments and not be sure about what approach to take or who might still need to be going away and researching what models to use with a particular client. I think once you realize that not everyone is the finished product and no one is expected to be the finished product, that then makes you a lot easier in your application where you know, the huge, the biggest part of it is showing that, hey, I've got these skills, but there's also these skills I don't have. And, you know, being on the course would allow me to have access to learning those skills. So just making sure that, you know, you're not, not just putting the course on a, uh, not putting the course on this pedestal, but also not putting sort of colleagues that you work with on a pedestal as well. Yeah, I love that as well, because I know we've spoken about it before, but you know, the reason why you're doing the doctorate is to learn more, like you're not the finished product when you're applying for training. And I think sometimes, you know, individuals, in- including myself, sort of feel like, okay, actually, I can only apply when I've done this, 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 yeah. this, this, and when I yeah. know how to formulate, assess, do this, all of these different things. But actually, you're so right in saying that, it's more about the potential and your passion for learning. And we've spoken about it before, you know, you can't teach passion, but in terms mm. of the skills of assessing, formulating, that is something that the course is there to provide you with to learn. But I think just reflecting on, yeah, how it how it is a really, really long process and quite difficult as well. I mean, the journey to the clinical doctorate really isn't one for the faint-hearted. And I think Mm. you're a sort of prime example of that in terms of applying six times. But just for context, for those listening, there were 4,655 applicants in 2022, and that was for 1,155 places available, meaning the success rate is around 25%. So Really interested in your doctorate onto the ClinSci. I know you've mentioned the sort of six times, but thinking about, you know, what that looks like for you each time and how many different roles you had before you got onto it. Yeah, no, absolutely happy to share. And I'll preface by saying that, you know, everyone's journey is different. Everyone has a different experience of it. Uh, people are going to apply once and get on. People are going to apply several times and get on. People will get on on years that they have one interview versus people get given four interviews and you know take what you will from from my experience of it all but I can fully remember so the the, the first time that I applied I, I didn't want to apply until I'd had both clinical and research experience under my belt because I felt I want to show that I have a breadth of experience and knowledge um so the, the first time I applied was the first time I'd had a clinical role, an assistant psychologist role. I'd worked uh, in research as a research worker at King's in psychosis for about two years uh, post-master's. And that was a fantastic first step. It was great in terms of learning how clinical practice is informed by research and vice versa. But at the same time, I was very keenly aware that research wasn't where my passion lay. I could understand the importance, but I wasn't passionate about it. 
And even to this day, like, you know, you're on the course, you are having to do research projects, you can appreciate the value of research and you can hold it in high esteem without it being something you're incredibly passionate about. And so when I finally got my first sort of assistant psychologist role, which was at, um, well, it was in a uh, autism and ADHD unit uh, at St. George's, and I worked there sort of on and off for about three years, that's when I sort of sent in my first application. Um, so I'll also preface saying that the first time I sent it in, I was 26 years old because I had gone away and I'd done a four year undergraduate degree. So, and then after that had had a, uh, a master's and then after that was unemployed for a year and a half where it was both through just unlucky uh, applications. It was the competitive nature of it all. I was applying for research assistant posts, assistant psychologist posts, um, peer support worker roles. Uh, and I was getting to the interview stage. I had, didn't have much difficulty getting to the interview, but I just couldn't cross the line. I couldn't get that job. Um, and I would sort of quite commonly hear that phone call of you would our first runner up choice. Yeah. And that's, re that's really hard to deal with because if you kind of know that you're kind of meeting the criteria to get these jobs and you're going for the interviews, but you're just not crossing that line, you're thinking, you're reflecting, thinking, what am I doing wrong? And, you know, you think about the uh, interview process as being really competitive. It is really difficult because you're going up against sort of a, a really small selection of people from a large group that have applied. The assistant psychologist role I had at St. George's, I, there were 365 applicants for a single role. Um, and in fact, they had actually, I think they'd accidentally left it open for like a day too long. Oh and so goodness. they managed to find funding and they said, you know what, we're actually going to increase the roles from, from one role to, I think, five or six roles. Uh, um, and I managed to get, get in through that. And I felt that was very like a foot in the door of the sort of clinical um, experience. So then once I kind of had, you know, a few months into that, I sent in my first application, didn't get any interview invites, um, wasn't expecting to. In retrospect, I'm sort of, you know, for anyone listening, you know, uh, people sort of say apply when you're ready, apply this, apply that. You'll know when you when you want to apply. In my case, I would have, I think I would have found it really valuable applying earlier when I hadn't set that, that parameter to myself of apply when you've got clinical and research experience simply to get experience with the process yeah. because it's not a job application. It's not the same as applying to a job where you're trying to say, hey, I'm, I'm the best candidate for this role. It's not like that. You, you are, yeah, okay, so you're hired as a trainee clinical psychologist, but that's not a job you're applying for. You need to show, as you said earlier, that you aren't the finished product. You know, you have these skills, but there's other skills that you don't have. And actually that being on the course will allow you to do that. So if I had sort of had that experience of the process and understood the questions on the application form much earlier on, who knows? But, uh, so that first uh, time I applied, didn't get any interview invites. Second year I applied, didn't get any interview invites. So it was also again, still at the, the uh, autism and ADHD unit. And I sort of think back on those sort of first two years and I wasn't getting anything going. I was thinking, oh, well, you know, everyone says how competitive it is. I didn't realize it was this competitive. Mm. Um, but I also think the mistakes I was making were I was applying to the wrong kind of universities for me. I was going to the ones that I thought were held in the highest esteem and or that most people I'd worked with had, had gone to. When actually, you know, you need to think quite tactically when it comes to applying for the universities. We all come out of it with the same qualification. 
you need to think about, well, where, where do I want to be located for three years? Where would I be happy living for three years? What is the ethos of the university I'm applying for? Does that kind of match with what I, what I am, what my values are? What kind of approaches does the university favor? And does that kind of match up with, with what I want and what I want to get experience in? So it was then on my sort of third application, I got a reserve uh, interview at Liverpool. Uh, I got an interview invite to Edinburgh, but even that was from uh, the waitlist, and I got called up two days before. Oh and wow! By by this point, I I had sort of fully thought to myself, well, you know, this is my third time applying. Um, I haven't heard anything back. It's a no. So as a result, I didn't do any preparation. Um, it was very short notice. I hadn't really gone through stuff. I was in a hotel room the night before, kind of going through over Scotland NHS policy, which was something I was completely unfamiliar with. Oh, my goodness. Um, and as a result, I didn't give a good reflection of myself in the interview. Um, it's also worth noting at this point, I was working in an eating disorders unit yeah. uh, where it was a much more... Uh, clinically focused in terms of the AP role you were delivering interventions you were supporting meals you were writing case notes you were fully part of a clinical team um, in a very supportive role but also that kind of gold dust experience of being an AP and delivering an intervention both individual and family and group and I look back on it and I kind of view it as one of the most difficult roles I've had but also one of the most valuable and I think I don't know if, if people can relate to that in terms of learning through experience and learning through uh, difficulty, because actually when you're challenged, you remember what you've learned a lot more. Um, so I'm then thinking that was my fourth time applying, didn't, obviously didn't get on. Um, and then it was the next time that I got zero invites again. So I'd got almost like felt I'd gone back a step you know, where you feel like, okay, well, I was on a reserve list. I got called up for an interview. You know, I'm, I'm making progress. And then suddenly you come to a year where you have no interview invites again. And I think it was in that moment that I, you know, really just was like, is this for me? And I'm really glad I asked myself that question because obviously I stuck with it. The next year I got an interview invite at Royal Holloway. And all you need is that that one place that says yes to you. And it was a really fantastic interview experience compared to other ones I'd had. Um, and yeah, I think when you are able to take that step back and ask yourself that question, is this really for me? If you are still saying yes, that's a good sign. That shows you're passionate. That shows you've been knocked down but you still have the fight in you to keep going because the problem is we we're all what we're competing for. We're competing for a cause that allows us to help people. Mm. That's the most, it's the most ridiculous thing. You know, we all just want to help uh, at the core basis of it all. And if you're still sort of passionate about this, after being knocked down by this process that really kind of tempts you to take away the joy or the passion that you have and just try and fit yourself into a box of, good applicant for a trainee role that can be really difficult so hold on to those reasons you know hold on to why you are applying and continue to apply I think that really really good points and I mean so much has come out of that in terms of I mean not only thinking about the rejections in terms of the clin side but actually 
how challenging it is to get an AP role, how challenging it is to get a research assistant role as well. And I think you sort of mentioned it when we spoke last time, but sometimes actually getting an AP role can be harder than getting the actual doctorate. Yeah, statistically. Yeah, and then you're thinking like, oh my gosh, you know, APs usually have a master's, usually have some kind of great undergrad degree, some kind of experience as well. And they're obviously paid not as well as you know maybe someone else might with the same qualifications somewhere else so again it's really tough and I think reflecting on yeah barriers for a lot of people to keep going I mean that might be one of them in terms of how much you can sustain in terms of living costs Mm -hmm. etc but I think it's such a good point you make around yeah asking yourself and actually having a frank conversation with yourself and I think also believing in yourself to know that it's not all down to you. A lot of it is down to luck. And I think what you've said around, you know, one year you got sort of two interviews and then the next mm. year it was zero. And, you know, if anything, you would have had more experience and a better application. Yeah. And I think that aspect of, I think we've spoken about this as well, but a lot of people who apply are quite high achievers and doing really well generally. But then suddenly you get faced with this, you know, set of rejections time and time again. And you're sort of, you know, almost internalizing that and thinking, is this me? And exactly what you said, the whole, is this for me? Am I right for this? But then Mm -hmm. I love what you said in terms of actually, you know, where am I going to live for the next three years? What uni actually goes really well with my values and my ethos? What matches me? So thinking more strategically, as you mentioned, around Mm -hmm. am I just applying to get onto the program or actually am I applying to get onto a program that I really believe in and it really suits me and I can actually demonstrate that in an interview and things like that and in your application I was just going to say how it really what you just said there highlights the importance of separating you as an applicant for this course versus you as a person Mm -hmm. and you know you can't let the knockbacks of the process knock you back as a person you know you're still here you're still gaining experience each year um you know you can't live to work you need to work to live you need to have a life outside of this process outside of mental health because it the risk is you burn out or the risk is you get knocked back so much that you you lose that passion and you lose that drive and you work in something else and you know that's why it's so important to have those protective factors around you mm. to have that that life you know even on the course you know because otherwise you get on the course and you know there's so much to balance there's so much to juggle and what how are you going to balance and juggle that if you haven't got things to kind of make that less stressful for you it, it's very important to separate those two I think yeah definitely because like I guess linking on to that with the next question how did each sort of setback impact you both professionally and personally what kind of impact did that have on you and also how did you overcome that I know you mentioned you sort of sat down with yourself and said you know actually why am I doing this but in terms of practically what did you do to sort of say actually I'm going to come back better the next time yeah no it's a great question and it's, it's one to hold in mind because the process itself inherently makes you more resilient like whether you apply once or you apply several times, you've just had to really 
work hard on an application, really both sell yourself, but also really be reflective, be aware of every policy that seems to be going on in the NHS, really think about what universities you want to apply for, really think about what your narrative is that you're trying to convey and get across, really think about being a human being and showing a flavor of who you are. I think some of the best advice I got was in terms of the application and the supporting statement is you should be able to send a pile of 100 applications to your close people, like your friends, your family, and they should be able to read through them and instantly find out which one is you mm. just from reading because it should be a reflection of who you are and it shouldn't be you trying to tell them what they want to hear because that's false pretenses. <laughs> you know, you want to be a human being outside of this field, this discipline that we work in. And yeah, you sort of mentioned about how do you sort of get yourself back up and, and keep going. That's going to be different for every single person. I think by, by when you apply six times, it starts to become a bit of, I'm going to do this despite you. I'm going to get, I'm going to, I'm going to get on out of revenge. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to keep apply, applying. And I think the temptation is, you know, you get knocked back and it's, it's difficult and you shut down. Instead, it takes a lot more energy to really be galvanized by that and instead be like, do you know what? Okay, didn't get on this year. It's really competitive. Might not have got an interview. Next year, I'm going to really try even harder. And that's really saying a lot. I know that's kind of, there's just words, but if you can use that to really light a fire under you and attack the next application, like I, the, the year that I got on, the, the, the year just been, I rethought about my references. I, I got two new references. I thought about how I wanted to structure the sporting statement. I thought about, do I want to be that person that puts in buzzwords for the sake of buzzwords? Or do I really want to reflect on what my journey has been and what I'm willing to disclose in an application? And how does that make me a unique applicant? Because the temptation is, okay, well, I'm not getting where I want to get to in terms of this process. I'll just be that cookie-cutter version of what I think is a good trainee. I'll look at the person spec for a trainee and, see, and try to match myself up to that. And that might work for some people, and that might even work for some universities. Some universities really might appreciate that kind of applicant, but it didn't work. That wasn't for me, and I wanted to show who I was and what I could bring and what my journey had been. And so that's kind of what I held in mind. And that's kind of what I held in mind in terms of being resilient each time. Um, just that sense of, I believe in myself. My family believes in me. My friends believe in me. I just need to convince the right person reading the right application at the right time. And, and that's what you say. There is a, a massive element of luck to it. And I have worked with people, you know, who got on that first time or on the second time. And that's fantastic. But even they have admitted, I think I just said the right sentence and the right person read it and it resonated with them. And then I got the interview and for some reason they remembered what I said or I gave an answer that, that fit the criteria. Whatever it was, it, the stars aligned and you can try really hard but there is that element of luck to it because it as you said you know you quoted the statistics it is competitive absolutely I really love what you said there and I think the whole aspect of 
bringing your individuality, bringing your uniqueness to the application as well, to the point where, yeah, your friends would be able to identify which one is yours. Mm-hmm. Really love that because I think, you know, the topic of buzzwords is a key one that I will be picking on at, picking up on at a later stage as well. But I think it's such a good point to reflect on in terms of not just rewriting that person spec within your application but actually thinking about and quite reflectively as well I know we use the term reflectiveness a lot a lot Mm. in this profession but really thinking about you know exactly what you've just done in terms of thinking about each experience how that shapes you not only professionally but also personally because obviously you know six times that's like six years really because you can only Mm. apply once a year and then plus plus with the times you didn't apply it's a really long process and I think it really impacts you personally as well but I mean thinking about that in terms of resilience and you've mentioned that generally through going through the process no matter how many times you apply it's a really tough one that does build that resilience and yeah I guess touching on that thinking about have you noticed an element of improved resilience and what does that kind of look like for you? Just thinking about that question, it makes me immediately think about being where I am right now on the placement and the, the placement we I'm currently in is, is a neuropsych placement. I have, I have I've had zero neuropsych experience before being placed here. And it really makes you realize that, you know, when you get onto the course, you're kind of plopped onto a placement and you realize it's the first like job you've ever had that you didn't really apply for and you didn't really have a voice in choosing where you went you're kind of just placed somewhere and you have to be resilient to then manage the difficulties and navigate all of that that comes with with, with that placement that you're placed on um so yeah i think that the resilience that you're sort of mentioning from the process of it all of that 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 constantly having to jump through the hoops of the application. Uh, I found it has massively helped with getting on this course in terms of uh, just managing the different aspects of it. But even if someone who had applied once or twice, you would still need that sense of resilience because you're going to find times when you don't know what you're doing. You're going to find times where you're placed completely in the deep end and if you haven't had that experience of being knocked down and coming back up and, and really fighting for, for your ability and, 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 you know, really championing yourself, you're going to find that an even more difficult experience. Like I perhaps kind of glamorized the, the trainee role in my mind before getting on. And I'm sure I won't be the, the first person to say that, you know, it is a lot to handle. It's a lot to be, to take in, to absorb, to balance, to juggle. And, if you haven't sort of hardened yourself to the reality of what it's like to work in an NHS that is underfunded and has extremely long waiting lists and there are patients that are incredibly stressed and complex and, you know, have been through the system, then if you're not hardened to all that, it's going to be really tricky. So the more, I don't want to say that now someone has to apply six times in order to find that resilience... But, uh, you know, whatever it is that that is keeping you going, hold on to that. Whatever is keeping you fighting for each application, hold on to that. But also find that that life outside of of the course that that protects you if you are to get knocked back. 
because that it's, it's very likely that's going to happen in the future yeah I think that's a really good point that you mentioned as well around the glamorization of the course sometimes and getting on and I think you've used the analogy before where you used to see it as this kind of locked door and as soon as you got through the door it's sort of like oh okay great you know I'm here now this is it but actually I love what you said around yeah actually it's a job and you take to that job all of your years of experience before that Mm. And it's really about using that to your advantage from what it sounds like for you. And yeah, taking all of that resilience as well into it, because I think I saw on the King's Twitter once, you know, they were sort of saying, you know, remember that this is a band six role and that's what you're applying for as well. So Mm. really love what you said around making it a bit more realistic in terms of what the course is and actually how difficult it is to manage all of those placement days study days you know teaching days all of that it seems really tricky to be honest and it sounds like in terms of the resilience building you almost need that to do well on the course and get through it because that's then the first step into becoming a clinical psychologist yeah no I I absolutely agree I think you've worded it really well there Amazing. So you'll be glad to know this is the last question. But thinking about if you could go back and speak to yourself after your fifth or sixth rejection, what advice would you sort of have given yourself? Yeah, I I can recall that time when I realized I had no interview invites. Um, and I remember feeling very fatalistic. And I remember catastrophizing a lot and feeling like I had where my entire life had been kind of working up to this you know going back to that analogy that I mentioned that you just touched on about that door it is that sense of like you've been queuing at this locked door for such a long time and there's so many other people knocking on that door with you and you glamorize the idea of being on the other side of the door because like well at least I'm not kind of queuing on this side and there's so much that this door unlocks for me but actually it's just another, you realise you sort of open this door, you, you go into the room and, and there's another door after that. You know, it's, it is part of the process. The doctorate isn't the end result of this journey. It's a step along the process of it, for it all. And there are a number of doors on one side that's led to the doctorate. You know, people have come at Royal Holloway from, from various different backgrounds and experiences. You know, everyone's sort of taken a different journey to get to here. And although we're all together now, we might very well be on different journeys afterwards. And I think if I'd sort of kept in mind that, that this is just another step on the journey, this isn't going to sort of massively change your life, you know, you know, not everything's going to be fantastically amazing afterwards, then it's just being more realistic. It's having a more realistic view of the course. And I think a lot of that comes with things like this, like listening to podcasts, like talking to trainees, talking to qualifieds and asking them about their experience of the application process and asking about their experience of the doctorate course that they had is getting that more realistic sense because otherwise you do glamorize it, you put it on that pedestal and as a result, you then make life a lot more tricky for yourself because you've just added so much more stress. And I think that's what I was kind of doing. I was was feeling the stress that I put upon myself it was completely from me onto me. Um, so if I had perhaps focused on what I was learning from each role to the next, rather than what does this role provide for me in terms of getting onto the doctorate, 
versus what is this role providing to me that I can put in my toolkit as it this toolkit grows and grows. As I become a practitioner and this toolkit gets even full, more full, what have I got in there now that I can use into the next role versus, you know, putting words on a paper to try and sell yourself and, and tell people what, what they want to hear. Um, I think I would have, I would have made sure that I, I held that in mind. Um, but there was sort of one final point I wanted to make, which was that, you know, just reinforcing just how everyone's situation and everyone's journey is completely different. We are all different applicants with different backgrounds, different uh, experiences of our own mental health, of other people's mental health. Some of us have been carers. Some of us are parents. Some of us have suffered our own difficulties. And that is our strength as a collective cohort of um, applicants and trainees, that we are all different. And I remember having a, a really good conversation with my mum, who still believes this is a PhD. <laughs> and uh, she sort of was wondering, well, okay, with a medical degree, it's it's very linear. You know, you you do this at undergrad, you then, the next steps are laid out for you. You know, you follow a certain pathway, you tick the boxes needed, you know, you get X, Y, Z experience, and then you're, sort, you're sorted, you're a consultant. You know, it, it works very linear. Why isn't that the same for mental health? And I initially was like, yeah, well, gosh, why, why isn't it? That'd be great if it, if it was, make my life a lot easier. But I'm so grateful that it's not, that we all come from different experiences. We all bring different perspectives. We all have our own constant journey we're traveling along. Um, and I think the temptation as well is with this process to feel very, I'm in competitive mode. I'm competing against people I know are applying for this course as well. And that's really difficult because these are also people that you see outside of work and you go for a drink with on a Friday and you don't want to see them in a competitive light. You want to see them as a sport network. And I would just, you know, say for anyone listening, really encourage people to try to not be competitive because it will only be to your detriment. The, the course can't see you competing against someone else. They can only just see the application in front of them, work on you, focus on you, but use those people that you would feel competitive with as a source of support. So just listen to those people you work with, listen to trainees, listen to qualifieds, because there's sort of more so you can move away from it being a competition, which it is, but the more so you can move away from it feeling like that and a feeling very overwhelming competitive side of things to a sense of, hang on, no, we are a shared collective. We, you know, are fantastically different. That's that's really kind of what is going to hold us in good stead, I think, in the future. I love that. And I think it really comes full circle in terms of the reframing from the reframing of what a clinical psychologist is, the reframing of who you need to be to apply, the reframing of, you know, the, the inside on a pedestal and the people around you and all of this reframing that we're so lucky that you've had six years of, yeah, applying to it and actually learning all of these different things and sharing that with us. Because I think a lot of people will probably be listening to this, like recognizing a little bit of 
what maybe you used to be like or what I used to be like in that as well. And I'm definitely, you know, I'm not on the course by any means. It's my second time applying. So it's really useful for for me to hear from you, particularly about the competition point, because Mm. it almost drills it into you, the process that, you know, this is what you're going against. You have to be better than this. You have to be more reflective than that. So it's really interesting, as you say, you know, it's all just a puzzle where the Klinsai is just a piece in a very big puzzle that is your life. And it really helps to not internalize the process and not identify yourself as someone just wanting to get onto the doctorate and actually putting things into context and thinking, okay, actually, that's just one part of my life. That's not my entire life. And yeah, it sounds like, you know, the moment you stopped doing that was the moment that you were suddenly unlocking a lot more from the experiences that you were in in terms of roles and unlocking more in terms of your application and your ability to write that and who were your references and things like that. So I really, really like that aspect of reframing and thinking about things differently as opposed to, you know, giving in to, yeah, maybe that competition side of things and all of that. But no, I just want to say as well, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us today. And yeah, I think really inspirational for me and I'm sure for everyone listening as well, hearing about all that you've been through and what you've taken away from it. And yeah, huge congratulations again for getting onto the Royal Holloway Doctorate. But yeah, thank you so much again. Thank you so much, Anya, for having me. And I, and I, I'm hearing that congratulations and I'm, I'm really trying to take that in because I think, you know, anyone who listens to this that that does get on either this year or in the future, it can be really easy to just then get lost in the process of, well, now I'm on the doctorate. Hold on to the good. Hold on to the good, like getting on or an interview invite or good feedback from an interview. Like hold on to that because it's that's going to be um, massively helpful in sort of like just banking that. Definitely. I think celebrating the small wins, 100%. Yeah. But brilliant. Thank you so much, Alex. Thank you so much, Anya. Thank you for listening to the first episode of All Things Psychology. Please don't forget to subscribe so you get notified when further episodes get released.